Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Unbuild It podcast. This week we have the privilege of two outstanding sponsors in the building industry. First up, Huber Engineered Woods. They're the makers of Advantech and Zip Systems. While I could sit here and give testimonials to each of their products, I'd much rather talk to you about Huber Engineered Woods as a company. As a sole proprietor, I need manufacturers that are team players. I need them at the beginning, the middle, and the end of projects to answer all my questions and help me provide the very best solutions to my clients' projects. Huber is just that team player. Whether from a building science perspective or solving a sourcing question, they always have the answers I need. If you haven't used Advantech zip sheathing, zip bar sheathing, or their family of tapes and liquid flashings, there is no time like the present to team up with the pros at Huber Engineered Woods and start putting your buildings in a position for success. Second up, Benjamin Obdike. Benjamin Obdike is another team player that helps me solve problems. Through their team effort, we always develop solutions for placing my homes in a position for success. They offer an array of different venting and rain screen solutions to solve for my often challenging questions. Whether it's Home Slicker, Slicker Max, or the ever tried and true Cedar Breather, their arsenal of products provide me the successful solutions I need. But the most important aspect of teaming up with a company like Benjamin Obdike is knowing that I'm delivering long-lasting, durable solutions to my clients' projects. Welcome to the Unbuild It podcast. I'm Jake Bruton. Today I'm joined by Peter Yost. Hey. Say hi, Peter. And Steve Basic. Hi, Steve. <laughs> I didn't even say stay. Say hi, Steve, but he still did it. I like it. Dad joke to the max. Uh, our topic today is something that we I get questions about all the time is blower doors and how we test. And uh, I think that it uh, makes uh, sense for me to start us off with. Uh, well, hey, Jake, first, my... you should tell them there's another episode they have to listen to, eh? Oh, yeah. If you, uh, if you, after this episode or prior to this episode, it doesn't really matter, you got to go listen to Peter and I's interview with uh, Gary Nelson that published a little while back. I think it's episode 19 of the Unbuild It podcast. Gary, uh, well, we can talk a little bit about Gary in a minute, yeah. but uh, if, if you don't know who Gary Nelson is, uh, you should if you're going to be concerned with blower doors in any way, shape, or form. So go and check out that episode. Thanks for reminding me about that, Pete. Sure. But see, th- this is where our process differs a little because you want people to go back and listen to that one episode. See, I'm saying it's the year end. You should do a whole year in review and go back and listen to every episode two or three times between the holidays. On different devices, too, because it gets us more downloads. Yeah. And it's just because you will pick up something. You know, my jokes are sometimes so subtle. It's it's at least three or four listens. Yeah, so subtle they don't get. come across as funny. Yeah, I can't no, believe always you learn funny. something new every day from <laughs> Mr. Basic. Every day. Well, every day. Okay, so I thought I would start us off uh, talking about my first experience with Blower Door. I believe it was 2013. It may have been 2014 that I bought the IRC 2012 code. And I was reading some of the energy efficiency stuff and was kind of like, what is this uh, Blower Door? And so obviously I used Google to figure out how blower door testing was working and at that time it didn't say mandatory in the code i don't think i think it uh uh but i but i think it referenced a resnet standard and then i went and found that standard and figured out what a blower door was and i called all of the insulators in my market and then i called the city office and asked if they had an energy auditing program that i was unaware of and they did and i called the people they recommended for that and none of them owned a blower door and i was like okay well nobody in my market owns one let's just buy this two thousand dollar thing and see if i can figure it out which was quite a jump i just was very curious (coughs) excuse me and i'd say uh, at 2k you have to be very curious yeah that's well i was uh, actually 
at the time, I believe it was the most expensive tool I owned besides a pickup. Like I didn't own any job trailers. I didn't own any expensive table saws. I didn't own anything from Festool. Wow, that's like, really it was that. the most expensive tool I had ever purchased. Uh, Big jump. But I wanted to know, and I was super curious about it. And so I bought a uh, DG700 and quickly learned that I was going to have to fully understand the math because I'm a Mac user. And at the time, <laughs> their portal system to connect it to the computer only did PC stuff. Yeah. And I was like, well, I just spent two grand on this blower door. I'm not buying a computer to be able to use it. So like the backside of my, uh, and I still have it, the backside of the operating manual has all the math formulas written out on it so that it was like cheat sheets. So I didn't have to look them up each time. Uh, but that really educated me because it's, you know, it's CFM, it's the volume of the building. Like it's all those things that uh, the new doors do for you that, like it made me understand better. And it was a couple years before I got a chance to blow door a new home just because we hadn't built one in a couple years. Uh, a lot of remodels, a lot of big additions in that time. You know, I had a 5,000 square foot addition, you know, but that's not a new home. So that's hard to test. Uh, and it was, uh, it was enlightening though, because I, I tested the house that I lived in that was a 1960s ranch. I tested a house that we built for my parents in 1965 and they were identical in leakage and really close in size. And so like, I just started to go like, Oh, nothing's changed since 1965 (laughs) or we've changed so little that all the same problems exist. So that was my, uh, that was like how I got in to being interested in how our blower door works and and what it tells us uh and i thought it would be funny if i asked you two to also tell your uh the story of your first time the first time <laughs> which one of you wants to go first it looks like he's. i'll let peter go but but peter before you explain your first time i have visions of like the the instruction manual saying something like it's a two-person job and the guy at the blower door grabs the blade and um, spins, spins it and yells contact, and then he cranks a hand crank to kind of prime the propeller um, before so, it actually kicks on. Boy, so not only that was probably something. after your first uh, use of a blower door. <laughs> yeah, the the first blower door had a combustion engine that drove the fan. Um, well, that's actually funny because some of the early blower doors were pretty clunky. In fact, the you said, should it say sucker blow? One of the first blower doors in Texas w- was through a window and it was called the super sucker. It wasn't even called a blower door. Um, <laughs> my first blower door was in 1993 when I started work at the NHB Research Center. And I didn't know anything about the performance of buildings, um, having just been a builder and remodeler. And there was a project we were working on where we had to know the air tightness of the research home that the NEHB Research Center had built several years ago. We were testing two different heating systems in it. And um, so the the guy who was trained in blower door set it all up. And I said, well, um, should the basement door be open or closed? And he said, well, we have to decide that. And I thought, hmm, that's that's a pretty big decision as to whether you include it or not. Um, And so it was really interesting that the blower door measures certain things incredibly accurately, but there's a bunch of shit, sorry, a bunch of stuff that we do that means that we have to get our measurements as accurate as the blower door and pressure gauge measurements. So we, we're going to have an interesting conversation about calculating floor areas and volumes. Um, but the so really that's a garbage was, in garbage out kind of equation. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, but the really interesting thing is that we were testing two different types of heating system or a radiant ceiling system and the conventional forced air. And we were really scared to go tell the guy who was, you know, in part paying for the research we were doing that the house was really leaky. And because uh, mm-hmm. it was, this house was, it was a modular home that was really leaky. I forget what the number was, but um, the manufacturer of the radiant heating system said, oh, that's okay. And I thought, hmm. 
Why? What, what am I not understanding that the, the guy who's, you know, wants us to test the radiant ceiling system isn't, isn't upset that the house is really leaky. And if you think about it, the, the leakiness of the house was going to penalize the forced air system proportionally more than the radiant ceiling system. So he, he didn't, he didn't care as much about the air tightness of the home as the forced air manufacturer would have cared, gave, gave his system a, a, a bit of an advantage. Um, so the, the interesting thing is that the results of the, my first blower door test made me even un, less sure about what I understood about how buildings work. <laughs> What about you, Steve? So my mine aren't as scientific as yours may be. My uh, first experiences with Blower Door were probably just right after Peter's time. It had to be like 95, 96 ish. Um and and That's I would almost team, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and I would almost guarantee they were with uh, a good old friend, Neil Moyer, who I would consider the godfather of the blower door. I know Gary Nelson invented them and, and all or, or, you know, built them, engineered them and all of this. But at that time, there was probably nobody that had more knowledge on about a blower door and its relationship in a house than Neil Moyer. Um, yeah, and, me and John uh, Tooley did a lot of that. Uh, yeah, and th those guys there. Yeah. What was that? Uh, what was the name of their uh, North Carolina company down there? Uh, Advanced Energy. Advanced Energy, yeah. They were involved in the first builder's guide. Didn't they do that in partnership or something? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, so my, mine are more kind of jokingly funny. We we got sent down to Mississippi, and when I say Mississippi, it wasn't Jackson. It was like Tutwiler, Mantachi, where populations are measured in hundreds, um, not thousands. Um, actually, Mantachi might have Are those been, real cities in mississippi or did you make up those no that's the, and there was one that i can't remember but i stood right the the person we were with said you know at the back of this building by the railroad was where the blues started and i i forget the name of the guy that he he said and i can't i don't know if that was tutwiler there was three towns that we went to and um i, I can't remember it was rosedale maybe was one of them um, but anyways, so w one of them was the, the probably um, I would put it in the case of one of the most feared women I've ever met. Um, Neil Moore. your wife? No, no. My, my okay. wife is a, a dreamboat. Um, I don't fear her. Um, but, uh, yeah, we were down there. And th there's a whole bunch of stories that I just can't tell because they're probably not the most politically correct. But let's just say that the day kind of ended where this 40-ish-year-old um, single woman invited us to dinner. And Neil Moyer and I were scared to death and had to come up with an excuses. And some of it might have had to do with her language, her stories and the swastika tattoo on her right arm. So, Steve, um, the specter of Neil's not a small guy either. The specter of you and Neil combined yeah. being afraid. Yeah. Of this well, thing when we're problem. together next time, we'll we'll have a conversation about the actual <laughs> stories of like what she said when her daughter walked in the house. Um, and anyways, but yeah. it was it was really scary. Um, but the thing I remember about her house, too, was Neil calling me down the hall to look inside the laundry closet. Well, inside the laundry closet, some genius decided to also put the naturally aspirating water heater. And on the side of the water heater, and I do have pictures of this somewhere, I have to find them, but there were burn marks probably like 24, 30 inches up the side of the water heater from the flame rollout on the water heater because it was put in the same closet as the dryer. So when you turn the clothes dryer on and depressurize, you, all the you're basically sucking on that heater. flame that's underneath the water it, heater. It, it may have helped their clothes dry a little more quickly. Yeah, and well, and there were like piles of clothes in there. How this place didn't burn down is baffling to me. Let's just say that 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 was mystery number one. Um, 
One of the houses we also went to was during the day. We were doing an energy assessments on these for the state of Mississippi. And uh, it was a manufactured housing metal skirt. And Neil's like, hey, you got to go down underneath this thing and get the insulation and stuff. And it's like, hey, okay, no problem. You know, it's like three feet off the ground. I'll pull back the skirt, crawl around under there. Well, I pull back the skirt, crawl in about three feet, shine the light, and I see the ground move. And when I say ground move, I'm not talking about like one square feet. I'm talking about the majority of footage underneath this prefabricated house just seemed to kind of shift left and right, back and forth. And there were long, thin, skinny things down there. Kind of like Indiana Jones. Yeah. And <laughs> I hate snakes. They are, uh, it's, I can tolerate almost anything, but snakes are not at the, certainly at the top of the list. And I, I just came like scooting out of there and Neil's like, what the hell? And I was like, Neil, I am not going in there. The ground just moved. And, uh, and he's, so he just kind of poked his head and says, yep, there's insulation in there. It looks like bat, probably about R19. Good. All right. Nail up the, <laughs> nail up the skirt. We got that. Good, two or so. good, good assessment. So, um, but the, the last story I also had is I remember we were doing a blower door on a church and we set up like three or four blower doors. In the front doors, like we had a guy there, like nailing two by fours to build this frame. And all I remember is when they turned them on, that the thing was like shuddering and trying to fall out of the opening. So I went and grabbed one of the loose church pews and leaned it up against the frame. So we have this picture somewhere of these four blower doors inside this opening with a church pew leaning up against them at 45 degrees kind of uh barricading zombie style barricading yeah at at the church but we were able to actually get readings there so um anyways neil neil was he he was a really great educator very much like joe he he would sit there and endlessly tell me all the nuances of blower doors and talk about it and what to look for and this and that. And I mean, at this time I was a young architect, right? 95 ish, 96 ish. I was probably two or three years out of school. So I was somewhat like Jake, like what the hell is this big fan and why do I care? Um, but, and, and here I am working with the guy who probably cares and knows the most about it. So very fortunate. Um, and I, I run into him every once in a while. I had a conference and stuff, so it's. So, uh, Jake, he's, you he's said a great that you guy. owned a DG seven hundred, the the digital gauge seven hundred from Tech. Did you earn? Did you earn? Did you uh, buy that first before you bought yep. a power door? Uh, no, so uh, I bought it as a unit, as a package deal, uh, and I still own it. Uh, actually. Uh, I hope that Travis listens to every podcast. Travis from Catalyst Construction has it on long-term loan right now. <laughs> I have a uh, I have a RetroTech uh, the five thousand fan with the DM thirty two now, mm-hmm. and uh, all I can say is they're very comparable. They both give me the readings that I need to get, uh, and I'm doing so little like outside of the realm of just testing an envelope that I'm not sure if I see a benefit one way or the other. I think they're both just very competent devices. Yeah. People will learn this from, if they go back to episode 19, but uh, to me, you know, I started out with a DG 700 from TEC and I didn't have a blower door fan. So I used a, a window fan and I could depressurize, you know, small homes to like 20, 25 Pascal's. So the first blower door test I did didn't, they weren't quantitative, they were qualitative. I just used it to depressurize the house enough to go find the leaks as opposed to actually measure. And that's kind of interesting because I remember the second time I did a blower door test, Steve, was with Coda Ueno at um, Building Science Corporation. We were in Houston testing a bunch of Building America homes. And, you know, Coda wants to set up, you know, the software and he wants to run through the multi-point test. And he wants to, after he's done and gotten the measurement of the CFM 50 at 50 Pascal's negative, he wants to go find the leaks. And the other guys are like, hey, you know, we got the 50. Let's go to the next house. 
Coda's like, no, 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 no. It's important that we understand, you know, the relationship between the leaks and their size and their locations and they're all rolling their eyes. And Coda was saying, it's, it's where the leaks are and where, how big they are. That's just as important as the number, you know? So, um, that's always been one of my pet peeves is that, you know, once you get the number, people blow and go and never really learn where the leaks were or how many of them were easy to seal as compared to really hard. And, uh, Coda was like, like taught me, no, it's both qualitative and quantitative. Um, well, I, I can tell you that it's funny cause you bring up Coda cause I was just thinking about the next thing I was going to say. And you know, part of me with the blower door is I have somewhat of, uh, 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 an aversion to it, um, to blower doors in general. And part of it, I think, is because in my earlier days, I had, I was intellectually intimidated with the blower door because my only association with blower doors in those days was Neil Moyer, Coda, Armin. And, you know, these are guys that can talk circles around people about pressure and you know, testing and all of this. And I'm just this young architect sitting there going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. It was more like, Steve, why don't you go out and do blower door testing with these guys? Not because I had something to add. It's because I could carry the blower door in the frame in one shot, you know, up up the stairs. So I got to travel with these guys and do that. And I remember my first time with Coda, and I don't know if he did this with, with you, but you know, Coda, Coda is certainly a machine. Um, he he geared up like he was going on a SWAT raid, right? Like he had a, a clipboard that was double Velcroed to his thigh so he could jot down notes while he's doing things and like had his bat belt, like flashlight and, you know, this grappling hook and everything so that he was able for almost any situation at a moment's notice to find that air leak and, you know, make some kind of adjustment or, um, he is, uh, yeah, he is the epitome of, uh, like preparedness and operation. It's, uh, it's absolutely amazing when you get a chance to do anything with them. It's, uh, it's a trip. And, and I, I do remember Peter, we, we were out, I think it was like Vegas or something. And Phil was with us. It was me, Phil. And I think it was Coda and, you know, Coda's relentless. He he want he has to get every um, measurement and take everything. And Phil and I were just sitting there going, you know, the go kart place is closing in two hours. <laughs> we got to get out of here, Coda, because we you know we wanted to go ride the go karts tonight. Good time with the go karts. And uh, and Coda's like, well, we should really turn this around and do a negative test, and we should do this and that, and then we need to get the pressures across the bedroom doors, and it's like all of this, and it's like, can't we just guess at it? We'll give an educated guess. The go-kart place is closing. So, uh, All right, so anyways. let's talk about uh, what ACH50 means, just as a, as a base to the conversation. It means air exchanges per hour at 50 pascals of pressure, meaning... If you pressurize or depressurize the house uh, to 50 pascals of pressure, all of the volume inside the house uh, doesn't exchange more than three times per hour. And that's the way the code still reads for the majority of the United States. I think it's climate zones one and two is five ACH 50. Uh, I don't know what the 2021 code update looks like on that, but I heard a rumor that it was going to be three across the entire United States. But there's also local municipalities can lessen it, right? Because I think it was like North Carolina, even though it was three, there's a bunch of communities that relaxed it to five. Yeah, or that haven't even adopted, you know. Uh, So that kind of allows people to cheat by making their house bigger, right? Yeah. If we're talking about total volume exchanged... If you increase the volume of the house, then you have to leak more air to get to the same, or potentially you can leak more air, you know, higher CFM at 50 uh, and have a lower number. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, there's two channels on the blower door setup. One of the, one of the pressure channels measures the difference in pressure between the inside and the outside of the building. And then the other one is the pressure across the fan. 
which gets converted to cubic feet per minute. So, so that's the first thing that's really seemed weird. Well, wait a minute. If you're trying to measure the flow across the fan at, at 50 pascals, why don't you just measure the flow, right? I mean, put in a, a flow gauge into the stream of air and measure how fast it's moving. And, you know, we were talking to Gary Nelson. He said, yeah, but that's a very difficult measurement to do consistently. And you have to know the fan curve, you know, the, how much air moves per rotation of the blades. And it's really interesting that it's actually easier to measure the pressure across the fan and convert that to cubic feet per minute airflow. That's more accurate than actually measuring the airflow. Um, Which is why those little rings, you have to make sure you enter the correct ring, right? Because it has to know the space that it's measuring that pressure distance or difference in. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting is, you know, when you, when you pick up a, a fan blade, right? You, how many blades, uh, how much do they, how much are they curved? Right. Because it, like on an, a prop airplane, um, you can't change the number of blades, but you can change the pitch, the angle of the blades, right? So they bite harder when you're taken off and, and less when you're in flight. So you, you can change that, re- that relationship between the way the blade cuts the air and how much air is being moved. Well, you can't do that with a blower door, right? It's a fixed blade. So that means there's a, there's a range of, RPMs for the fan where there's the optimal relationship between how the blade cuts and moves air. And so rather than speeding or for optimal reading, right? Pardon me? That optimal relationship is so that the thing can take the best measurement, the most accurate. And so it's, it, this is kind of weird because you would think that if you picked a really good fan to take care of lower or higher flows, you would slow the fan down or speed it up. And and we do that, but within a certain range, it's actually more accurate to put in a ring to keep the blade spinning faster than it is to slow the fan down. And um, I remember asking Colin Olson about this at uh, TEC. And he said, I said, yeah, but doesn't put, if, if if you pick the fan that's 18 inches in diameter, and now you're necking it down to a hole that's like four inches. Doesn't that create a lot of turbulence? And he said, well, think of it this way. If there's a bunch of rocks in a stream, above the rocks, the water is very smooth as it necks down through an opening in the rocks. And it's only downstream that you get all this turbulence. And he said, same with a blower door fan. As you pull the air through... The flow is really, really steady and consistent around the hub. And so that's why putting on different ring sizes doesn't create a lot of turbulence. Um, And I didn't, you know, I'm not a physicist, but Gary and Colin both are. And it's just the cool thing about those guys is they're, you know, PhDs in physics, but they're actually engineers at heart. So they're all the people we know that are like the leaders in building science the thing that's really cool about them is they have incredibly strong academic credentials, but they're all engineers at heart. They're all like, okay, that's good to understand that principle, but how do we make that work for us and understand how buildings work? So to me, they're really, you know, all the cool people we know that are 10 times smarter than we are, they're, they're not just academics and they're not just engineers. They're the best of both. That uh, so that that conversation about being able to like I called it gaming the system by making the house bigger. Uh, it's a challenging thing to compare different size buildings. Then uh, you know we finished a house in August that tested at 0.57 ACH50. We're very happy below that uh, passive house requirement. By the way, passive house is 0.6 at ACH50 for those that don't know. Uh, and then the house that I'm in now that I'm recording the podcast from is my personal house. And it was uh, 0.43 ACH50 a couple weeks ago when we got our final. Uh, and those are third-party tests. I had somebody ask me if I was third-party testing. And I was like, oh, are you accusing me of not 
<laughs> putting out real numbers. Uh, well, that 0.57 is a hell of a lot better achievement because that house is 1,200 square feet. And the house I'm in right now, because it has my office attached to it, is like three and a half times that size. Yeah. So that 0.57 is more of an achievement. So it's because the relationship between surface area being a squared function and volume being a cubic function. Um, and there, Martin Holiday has a great blog on Green Building Advisor about should we move away from C, uh, ACH 50? And it's because leaks aren't about volume. They're about surface area. And so there are metrics we can report that are CFM per square area, right? And a lot of people say they're a lot more meaningful than using the volume-based ACH uh, 50. And that that square area would be, uh, in Martin's proposal, would that be uh, area of the envelope? Yeah, yeah, area of the enclosure. Because that's a better measure of air leakage um, rather than going to a volume. Because it's not the volumes that really leak, it's... It's where the leaks occur on the, but you know, so that gets into when, when we get a CFM 50, that's a really accurate measurement from the equipment that we've paid a lot of money for the blower door fan and the digital pressure gauge. Uh, And um, what do we do with that number? Well, now we go around and we measure the volume of the house. I, I dare anyone to measure the volume of even a simple house as accurately as the blower door fan and the pressure gauges, their accuracy. Um, I was just in a house that's five levels, 8,000 square feet. It took me three hours to estimate the volume of that building. I mean, it's got a silo, three stories that's attached to a rectangular shape. It's got all kinds of. You sure this wasn't a barn? Well, it it, it kind of was modeled after a barn. It's it's up in ski country in Vermont, um, but it's an incredibly geometrically complex building, and I'm sure that my measurement of the, its volume, you know, is plus or minus ten percent. Um, now, if you had a new home that you had like in BIM, you know, there's probably ways to generate the volume really accurately off of a a (coughs) three-dimensional model. But when you go and measure by hand, um, measuring even just floor area accurately is, you know, it takes time and effort. So um, we, we, we get these really, really high quality, accurate measurements from our equipment, and then we divide them or manipulate them with measurements from a job site. So we've had that, that conversation in house before I, uh, I was helping one of my hers raiders measure a house because I hadn't done it before he got there. And he's like, well, this room is 1411 by seven, six. That room is, and he said the measurement, I said, okay, well, what about the six foot doorway between them? Like that's another four inches by six feet by six foot eight tall. Like, how are you calculating all that? He's like, well, would you rather we just measure the exterior walls? And I said, well, are we, are we counting the stuff on the outside of the drywall? Cause the drywall is not an air barrier here. And if so, are we counting the studs then? Are we assuming that there's 15% framing? Like, where do we make that? And he, oh, we just measure the floor. And I was like, okay. I mean, at least then I know that all of my houses are rated in the same way that every other house that he rates. And so we just decided to do that when we test envelopes without drywall and stuff like that that we're just measuring to the sheathing then for the um for that conversation we're assuming there is no framing members or windows or anything like that we're just measuring and so it's like i feel like i just had to pick a standard and i've just done that for all my houses when i test so that i'm at least testing all of mine the same you know when i was at the nhb research center the there was a group under a contract to work out an ANSI standard, um, A-N-S-I, ANSI standard for uh, measuring and recording floor area. And this was being driven by the realtors. You know, they wanted yeah. they wanted everybody to measure square footage of homes the same way. 
And that doesn't even include volume. These guys went on for months arguing about how to measure just the floor area of a building, which is actually a lot easier than doing volume. Um, so you would think that, you know, how hard is it to measure floor area or volume of a building? And, you know, if you've got a real small, uh, real simple cape with no cathedral ceilings and no bump outs and, you know, yeah, it's pretty easy to get an accurate volume measurement, but we have a lot of really complicated buildings where that's not quite as easy. Yeah. But Peter, e- even with the the simple house, this is this is where I come in with the opposing view. I speak for the listeners. The uh, I wonder if, if they agree. What did you say? I wasn't listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, I always, my take was always even even if you took the simplest house and and let's say we would get a let's do a tool shed, sixteen foot by twenty foot, no windows, one doorway. What's the chances of 10 people doing a blower door test and having any two of them calculating the same volume and having the same input, right? Yeah. yeah. And and getting the same result, right? The same result, I, I would say you're going to get 10 different results. Out of the 10, you might get two that have the same inputs, exactly the same. So it's it's one of those things that, like Jake, you know, you just mentioned where you did all the tests. Unless you go into the development and you're the one person that did all of it, you really don't know what the comparison is because there can be, I mean, I see this crap all the time on, you, you see it online. There's one that comes to mind where I was arguing with the guy, and that's a surprise, um, but online where... They yeah well someone's got to stick up for the people and uh, but uh, they were arguing something like point one air leakage and the building had a like a ten foot wide by nine foot garage door and I was like hell no you you have you have one of leakage around that garage door by itself oh, well, we sealed it up really good with, uh, you know, some good garage door gaskets. I said, I don't care. You can buy the best golden garage door gaskets out there. So they were counting the garage volume because it was heated? Well, it it was the building. The the garage door was somehow part of the conditioned space. Like garage door in the kitchen sort of thing. Or something. Yeah, it wasn't quite that because it was heavily, it was industrialized. But it's just, I don't know. it It was just really weird that. And I use that as an example because that's the one, one of the ones that rise to the top. But you hear some of these insane numbers and, um, you know, you, you look at the project and go, there's no way that a house with that kind of cut up roof is getting that kind of number. And so then you wonder, okay, who's doing the inputs and, you know, where, where is all this coming from? There's, ha- there's got to be studies about exactly what you're talking about, Steve, like how to reduce the variation from uh you know tester to tester and where the, where it's best to spend your time like don't worry about two decimal places on the gauge you know do more accurate measurements of the building right you know so that you honor the accuracy of the equipment but um you know this is you know most of the border testing i do is on existing buildings and for me it's way more important to understand the nature of the air leaks and their location than the number. Yeah. Um, and you're just trying to get in the ballpark because the chances are in existing buildings, all of the numbers suck, right? You don't, you don't go in there and go, oh, wow, look at this. This 60-year-old building, 1.2, that's uh, pretty good. No, they're all at like 10 or 15.0, right? Yeah. Or worse. You know, some of the programs on existing buildings require you to get a before and after number to demonstrate percent improvement, right? And so you do need an accurate early one. But in a lot of instances, you know, again, I'm, I'm setting up the blower door to understand the air leakage. N- no one cares about the number, you know, from a diagnostic point of view. So uh, that's you bring up a, a great point, Peter. Uh, you know, I push really hard to be involved in the design phase of a project, and I push really hard to be uh, – 
in charge of writing the scope. Borderline bully, I might say. The person I work with the most is calling me a bully. Uh, And so one of the things that I write in scope of work for uh, our remodels is we're going to do a blower door test before we start anything. And we're going to do a blower door test when we're done. But it's like test in, test out. And that's on even projects. That's on every project where we're going to touch the envelope at all. And on projects that air leakage is not necessarily important to the client because I'm going to say, well, we're going to prove that we're at least not making the house worse. That's it. Uh, we had a recent project where, and I don't know the exact numbers. I have to look them up. Uh, but it was a, you know, three quarters of a house remodel. And we did the energy audit program through the city, which requires the same thing, test in, test out, prove that we did anything better. And it was like seven and a half ACH 50. And, I realized uh, that as soon as they did that test, I was like, oh, wow, they have a tuck under garage that they didn't show me when I came to look at the house the first time. Uh, And there's nothing but uh, diagonal sheathing and hardwood floor between the tuck under garage and the kitchen and living room. Right, right. And I was like, and then there's just drywall wall that like there's a a floor drain in the basement that the wall was built over top of. So like you could just stick your hand from the house and into the garage. Uh, and so like we moved things around, we sealed everything up. We actually, uh, just for insulation purposes with a little bit of air sealing benefit, we foamed the wall between the, uh, house and the garage. And then we foamed the rim in the garage. And then we laid Advantech over top of the diagonal board sheathing and taped all the seams on it and then installed the new hardwood floor. And like, we did a lot of stuff to try to separate the two elevations and cut down on some air leakage. And it was like 7.2. Like we went from 7.5 to 7.2. Like we cut like 40 CFM or, or 150 CFM, something like that. Like an almost nothing number it felt like. And I was like, well, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but they have an attic fan and they have an attic staircase and they have old windows. Yeah. And like, and I was like, I guess it makes perfect sense that like I didn't cut down on much leakage because my problem that I was solving for wasn't that much leakage. Like those garage doors in the basement that were behind a door that led to the garage weren't leaking anywhere near as much as that attic fan or that attic access. Yeah. And you know, this brings up the, just about every time I'm running a blower door, I'm doing infrared camera work, if not fog testing as well. And and part of that is, you know, diagnostic and scientific. But, you know, if I go tell the homeowners, well, you got a really leaky house and, you know, you're at, you know, 15 ACH 50, they go, hmm, uh, that's a shame. <laughs> and then you show them okay. infrared photographs and now you start to get their attention. But Increasingly, I'm finding that the way to convince people they need to do something about how leaky their houses are is fog testing. That always gets their attention. When they see the actual... I love a good fog test, by the way. Well, you, I'm not surprised. You spent a lot of time like in the fog. So, Okay, so I was... It's unbelievable. <laughs> we also do fog testing, and just so you know... Uh, if you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's or one of those big box stores during the Halloween season, you can buy a fog machine there much cheaper than you'll find one online. I think we got ours for like 60 bucks the two or three days after Halloween. And I bought the, uh, go juice that has to go in it. Uh, and we've done like eight or nine houses now with it. And I'm only halfway through that one, like 20 to $25 gallon of, we call it fog juice but yeah that's funny i was scrolling through my phone here peter and i wanted to uh uh i saved this text message comment oh like i'm not here off. but hey you just yeah. go and have a conversation with peter okay so i texted peter this at 8 30 one night and i said i'm not looking for a response tonight but i've been kicking around this this in my head for a while when we blow our door test at home we're not applying equal pressure or we're applying semi-equal pressure across the envelope, uh, which gives us a reading as to what the leakage is. 
but that doesn't directly correlate to natural pressures inside the house. And so things like, uh, you know, can light might leak more under natural pressure than it does under the blower door pressure because of stack effect and things like that. Uh, let's talk about that real quick. I actually, believe it or not, I actually know what one can light, uh, a non-airtight can light is worth. We measured it in Sacramento, me and Phil. Um, because we did a blower door with them open and then we taped them off and, uh, we were able to extrapolate what the value is. It's about 20 CFM. Is that brand and manufacturer specific? Well, I can get you the specs on that light. I have them somewhere, but, uh, <laughs> smart ass. So I wanted to hear your perspective on it, Peter. I liked your response, by the way. No, I don't remember what it was, but, um, that's okay. Yeah, so the cool thing is that, you know, the whole blower door concept is based on Pascal's principle of pressure, which means that if you have a vessel or an enclosure, um, as soon as you, you know, depressurize it, the air molecules communicate at the speed of sound so that the pressure is equalized everywhere. So... The blower door is an ideal um, use of that principle. When we talk about how air moves in and out of buildings, the, the pressure on the building is not the same anywhere, right? And it varies with climate. It varies with wind. It varies with um, how cold it is because of stack effects. So th that's, you know, the blower door is the best thing we have to try to assess the air leakage of a home, but it bears little relationship to the way air actually leaks in the building. Um, for one thing, we're depressurizing, which means that we're pulling air out of the building. And um, in cold climates, you know, there's cold air being pulled into the bottom and warm air being pushed out at the top. So um, the way that the air leaks we're we're just identifying the leaks and and gathering all of them together in sort of a summary number that's really not how the building actually leaks air so i don't know how i did compared to the first time around but that was pretty much the same as your text message other than this is not really suited for a text message so I this is a surprise question uh, that I didn't uh, prep you guys for. So I thought I would ask it uh, from the uh, slimy contractor perspective. How would you cheat a blower door test? Well, so conservatively lie about uh, the inputs. Steve's Steve. muted and he doesn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um. Can certainly lie about the inputs. <laughs> you could just lie. I like it. It's simple. It's elegant. It well, works. you said slimy. You said slimy contractor. So I that's did. to me right. a contractor without a conscience, right? Well, yep. you know, there's the big question about if you have a home with a basement, should you be counting the? Yep. Yeah, open the open the door. Yeah, and you know that's it's tricky because some people say, well, we really don't condition that space. Um, but is it part of the envelope? Yeah. In so, numbers. you know, the, you, you can answer the question different ways, depending on whether, whether you want to include that volume or not, because if you include that volume, it's going to make your, it's not going to change the AC, the CFM 50. It's going to change the ACH 50, right? Because that's a big volume to rule in and rule out. And I don't know about your guys' experience, but I always do a blower door test with the basement door closed and then the basement door open. And in in many, if not most, if almost all of the homes, the, the, uh, the number doesn't change much. And the only way that number should change a lot is if there's good separation between the basement and the rest of the house, the house. which there almost never is. So opening and closing that door, you would think that a door that's, you know, six, eight and uh, 2.8 would represent a big change in the, you know, the total leakage of that space. But there's so many other holes between 
the basement ceiling and the rest of the house that the number doesn't change that much. I did have one house where um, there was a, a, a cathedralized attic that had an exterior door at the uh, walk upstairs. And we were able to identify the attic as a really big source proportionally of the air leakage um, because there was good separation between the rest of the house and the attic. But I rarely see that for the, um, for the basement. And the reason that another reason why that basement uh, leakage doesn't greatly increase too, is because you're for the most part testing concrete. Like you're, you're testing when you, when you add in that basement, you're not, you're not adding in uh, a bunch of sill plate connections that weren't already close to being inside and, and, and things like that. Like you're not getting any air leakage through concrete. Yeah, that's interesting. And you may get a lot of air leakage at the rim joist, but with the basement door open or closed, you're probably still picking up that rim joist, right? So mm-hmm. so you're right, Jake. There's not much leakage from the majority of the surface area of the basement. And that portion at the rim joist that you are, you're probably still picking that up pretty easily because of all the penetrations um, communi- uh, uh, linking that rim joist to the first floor. That's interesting. Why did you choose to say linking instead of communicating there, Peter? Confuse us. V- variety of word selection. Okay. Just making sure there wasn't something that I wasn't following there that you were trying to make a determination. Yeah. Uh, no, there's Sometimes Jake I looking feel like for I'm underlying meaning. Like yeah, it. exactly. You're reading way too much into, you know. Just- Making sure my word choices, I guess. So, Peter, what, who who invented the Pascal, or where does it come from? Well, he's been googling. That's why he's not talking. That's why I hadn't been talking. I, you know, I hate you. I'm assuming. Let's just that start with that. Pascal's principle was discovered by Pascal. Blaze Pascal. Blaze. Blaze. B l a i s e. You know, that's funny because um, I thought that that was a feminine name, but it's, I think it's both or more. It's actually a pretty cool name. If I was still having kids, that would be, that would be up there. And Blaze. It just sounds like you're a fun guy, right? I'm Blaze. Hey, nice to meet you, Blaze. Yeah, you, you spell it like B-L-A-Z-E, so maybe that's why you like it. Well, it's A-I-S-E. But, yeah. And it's, and it's defined, defined as one newton per square meter. Yep. So it's a force. It's a, what's it equivalent measure. to? What's it equivalent to? One. Ten. Ten. What? This is, this is Stump, Stump Peter, Peter before the end this of the year. Wikipedia is what this is. Yeah. I don't know what 10 Pascal is. It's a bar. B-A-R-Y-E. 10 bar is worth one Pascal. Not millibars? It's 10 bar? Ten bar. Hmm. What well, the the easiest way that I've always remembered it. Joe expressed one Pascal as the pressure exerted by you dropping a piece of paper on a desk. One one piece of paper. Well, that's what's so. crazy about the accuracy of a blower door or a pressure gauge is it's measuring incredibly tiny pressures. I mean, think about it. There's um, about fifty Pascals in one pound per square foot. And the other thing that's weird is that, um, so what's one atmosphere, right? Which is the force pressing on all of us here on earth. It's like 110,000 Pascals. So we, we feel it as nothing, right? But there's a lot of force being exerted by the atmosphere on us. And so one ten one one hundred thousandth of that pressure is what we're measuring the accuracy to. Actually, the pressure gauge is measured to like plus or minus 0.5 pascals in that range. Um, and, you know, I was talking to Gary Nelson about this. What's really cool is like, Gary, how does a pressure gauge measure that accurately? And um, it's actually a silicon wafer with a voltmeter stuck to it. And as you exert force on it, that translates to an electrical current in the silicone. 
And um, as that disc moves, um, it picks up and expresses the pressure difference as a very tiny voltage. And the really cool thing about those called piezoelectrical measurement is that it's incredibly durable, you know, and accurate. So that's why we have these pressure gauges that um, measure incredible ranges of pressure and very accurately. Um, and these pressure gauges last, you know, a really long time. They need to be recalibrated, but they're accurate and durable. It is very interesting, actually. <laughs> okay, I think that's a, a good Nerdville place to uh, to leave this episode. I have a feeling that we will uh, revisit uh, revisit Blower Door, maybe a uh, Blower Door Tips and Tricks. Oh, I forgot to say, uh, my little uh, cheat for Blower Doors, uh, if you're depressurizing, use uh, casement windows. Because then your windows will test better. Because they'll they'll pull in on the on the weather stripping, and I don't think that one's slimy either. Casement windows are also prettier than double hungs in most of the houses I build. Yeah, double so. hungs leak like a sieve. They're horrible. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking, Jake. Can you imagine the amount of energy Peter expended the evening before the recording with Gary Nelson? I was terrified. I can just see you like really? and happy. And that's excited. like that's like a steam engine, like like going you know two hundred miles an hour, just like really <laughs> chucking, and like you you have all boilers fired at that point. Well, the cool um, thing about guys like Gary is that he's he's been devoted to buildings all his life. And, no, I I get it. It's cool, but, and he totally should be retired. But he says, like, no, 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 I'm not retired. I'm just on a different work schedule. <laughs> yeah, people like that don't retire. People like that just kind of fade away. Um, but they don't they don't retire. But it's like if you sat down next to, you know, Bill Belichick, how can you not talk about football, right? You can't you have to be excited. I wonder what the pressure is inside of football. I don't know. Depends I think on they, whether or not the Patriots are playing. Yeah, I think they determined that years ago, right? But Hey, you were, I know Jake, you were looking at me. I was videoing. So this, this is like the technological world we live in. It's just so cool. I'm, I'm fascinated. I know you guys won't be as fascinated as me, but we're sitting here, we're doing a zoom call for a podcast that we'll record that literally thousands of people will listen to. But while I'm doing that, I'm streaming live a sight camera and watching the excavator go through this house and tear the house down. On a project, so you're multitasking with us. I I am multitasking. You know, I read this. You're not going to believe this, so you might want to seatbelt yourself in the chair. Um, but I I read this uh, book, and it's called One, and it's basically you know the one thing you should worry about. Um, but uh, in there, he talked about one of his baseline arguments was multitasking is a bunch of BS. And that we spend about a third of our time recovering from things that, uh, you know, have taken us off uh, what we're supposed to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. And that we waste a lot of time with that. And, and the fact that multitasking just doesn't. And he said, pick the one thing that's the most important thing. Focus on that. That's where success lies. So I, but I actually anyways. believe you, Steve. Like focusing on the podcast. Look at us. I mean, we're we're doing blower doors, and I'm throwing out book club stuff because that's that's how much I care. And I believe the title of that book is the one thing. The one you recommended that to me, and I read it. It was good. Yeah. See, I'm I'm doing book club now, Peter. And now book club is over, and so is the podcast. I'd like to say thanks for listening today. Uh, Don't forget to. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or keep it to yourself if you're anything less. Don't forget to subscribe because the subscribers is how we know how many people are listening. And uh, don't forget to like and follow us on Instagram. It's the Unbuild It podcast on Instagram. I'm Jake.Bruton on Instagram. Stephen Basic Architects on Instagram. And there's Peter. I have to look it up each time. (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah, you know what's funny? I told Jake he should change his name. 
right? He's, he's getting to that age where it's like um, having, um, how can I say it? Flair? A more, a more perceived influence, right? Just by kind of initially meeting him. If he changed Jake Bruton to Jacques Bruton, right? Why is it and not just, the, that's the architect's perspective. I thought you were going to say you should change his name to Blaze. Blaze, there you go. Till next Blaze. time, thanks for listening Blaze to the Unfilled Podcast. Thanks, you guys. All right, pal.